The Pinball Network is online. Launching the Pinball Tapes. My name is Zach Colligan, and I'm possessed by Pimble. If you're listening to this, there's a glimmer of hope that I can instill into you the joy and fascination I get from this kinetic wonder. This is the Pinball Tapes. Well, hello, my fine feathered friend. I'm uh, well and truly alive and well, and uh, yeah, I mean, I could sit here and probably make excuses. I mean, there's been lots of things that have gone in my life at the moment and got in the way of doing this endeavour, and though I enjoy this very, very much, it had to take a bit of a back seat. And also, uh, interestingly, what we're talking about today got well and truly in the way, because I guess I should explain the way I kind of work. I can't handle having a busted game in my life I just it can sit there and it just plays on my mind (laughs) because you know what pinball's like you've either got this magical game that does what you need it to do and you have fun with it with you and your friends or it's just a big hulking box of metal that doesn't work so it drives me insane now I've only got room for three in my sort of man cave or my car hole I like to call it and If I don't have all three working, I don't feel like I can have people over to do stuff, even though, you know, having two pinball machines and I've got an arcade cabinet as well, a 60-in-1, is perfectly fine for any occasion. I just can't quite cope with having one sitting there broken. So I like to make sure it's fixed. I've got one word for you, and that word is electromechanical. Whoo, boy, howdy. Far out. For those unfamiliar, of course, this is the earliest sort of pinball machine ever made. And as the name suggests, it's all mechanics and switches and relays. It's obviously electrified, but there's no circuit boards in it. I've uh, wanted to delve into an electromechanical pinball machine for a very, very long time. And I had a feeling it would be a very steep learning curve, and it certainly was. I have no regrets, though. It's been an amazing journey and it was so varied and there's so many little issues that I had to solve along the way that I thought it might be a good exercise for this episode of the Pinball Tapes. I am going to talk about the game and what history I know about it and the other etc etc but I thought I'd also maybe uh, recount the actual journey I've been on with this whole thing. So (laughs) I'm going to do this in two very distinct parts. So if you really don't want to hear about any of this shenanigans, you can always fast forward to the bit just about the game itself. Uh, To be fair, that's going to be probably a bit scant because I went for something a little bit different with this one. And I guess leading on to that, it's a pretty good segue, I guess. I always wanted to take on a electromechanical pinball machine. And I remember years ago talking to a local tech and I said to him, like, what would you recommend as far as buying a game? And he said, straight away, a single player Gottlieb is the way to go. So that's basically the American brand Gottlieb. That, and these machines, 
probably into the 90s as well, were built like tanks. That was what was recommended. Basically going for a single player, American made pinball machine, preferably a Gottlieb. So what did I do? I went for a four player rare Spanish made game. <laughs> so I only have myself to blame. <laughs> and I got what I deserved. I absolutely got what I deserved. People often ask, oh, can you still get parts for them? And look, for the most part, you can. And the interesting thing about EMs is because they were all made in a fairly similar fashion, for the most part, you can find what you need, even amongst other manufacturers. I don't know how much that's recommended by Realtex, but there you can actually find bits and pieces that will fit your machine even if you don't find the exact part that you need. The trouble is, of course, when you choose a Spanish-made game, is that some of the parts is that some of the parts are so bespoke that you would be in big trouble if they didn't work. Luckily for me, I was able to find what I needed or something fairly similar. Now, you may have noticed from previous episodes of the Pimple Tapes that are kind of drawn to the more sort of unusual and less common games. And I'm sure that's a little bit <laughs> frustrating, maybe for some of you out there who want to hear about um, more modern games. Look, I'm not trying to be different. I just want to make that clear. I'm not actively going out and being odd. The experience for me of getting a game and pulling it apart and pulling it all back together, if I'm unaware of how it plays and I don't know how it's going to feel, that's kind of part of the fun for me. I mean, I wouldn't be spending, you know, $15,000 on something that I didn't know the feel of, but I'm more than happy to take a punt on a project, especially if it's something a bit interesting. Now, I've realized I've been talking for quite some time <laughs> and I haven't actually mentioned what we're talking about on today's episode. So what are we talking about? We are talking about Recreativo's Franco's or Interflip's 1977 masterpiece, Dragon. Oh, yes. Not to be confused with Godlieb's Dragon, which is a great game as well. Um, I've done one of those up for a friend and thoroughly enjoyed that one. But we're talking about the Interflip Dragon, a Spanish-made pimple machine. And I'll talk more about the manufacturer Interflip later on in the episode. So I'm going to call this one Enter the Dragon. So let's begin at the beginning. Where did I find this beauty? And why did I choose this beauty? Well, I'd heard about the Interflip Dragon from the US tournament scene. And after owning it, I definitely understand why it's been chosen for that matter. It's a quick, fast game, and it would definitely level the playing field, which is what they often look for in tournament games. Because you don't want long playing games, and this is definitely not a long playing game. It's quite a difficult game, but more on that later. So I'd heard about it through the tournament scene. I heard about it on podcasts as well. I, I remember hearing Ron Hallett and Bruce Nightingale of the Slam Tilt podcast. Hope you're listening, boys. Love your work. They mentioned it, and it had just come up every now and then. So I was quite interested when one came up on the Facebook Marketplace. Now, I bought a few things off the Facebook Marketplace, a couple of pinball machines. Look, for the most part, it's been pretty good. I think I've got a pretty good idea 
of worst case scenarios. In saying that, (laughs) that's a pretty foolish thing to say because there were some very unexpected surprises on this one that didn't come through on the Facebook marketplace. But at the same time, nothing insurmountable. So that was a pretty good result in the end. Now, it sat around for quite some time. I mean, I wasn't too surprised about that. I just had it on my radar and I just watched it to see what would happen and just entertained other ideas. And I thought to myself, well, it's a bit of a gamble, but it's a pretty cheap project. And I actually bargained the seller down a little bit as well. And so got the price that I wanted and it was on the way. And <laughs> and I had a fairly long wait last time I ordered a machine, which was fine. But this time it was literally like, I said, oh, how much would it be? And he said, this much. And then he said, let me know now because it will be there tomorrow. <laughs> and I was just like, oh, okay. So, what was my first major issue when it came? (laughs) I tell you what, the interesting thing about interflip games is that all the playfields are made out of plexiglass. That is a very rare trait for a pinball machine back in the day. And I'm assuming it would have been very expensive to do, but the results speak for themselves because the playfield is almost immaculate. So when I got it, I looked at it. And I thought to myself, even just before I went, when, when I was unwrapping it and sort of getting it into place, I'm like, it looks a bit odd to me. The playfield looks a bit raised. And sure enough, it was warped. <laughs> and I'm going to say it, Glenn, dick move, man, to not disclose a warped playfield. The interesting thing is I've been buying for quite a few years now. And I've only just started asking that question. And for some reason, it eluded me with this transaction. It surprises me. And I guess it shouldn't surprise me. But for somebody to not tell you about a warped play field, that is a very, very devious thing to not disclose. The thing about this game as well, which I'll go into later, it has these pop-up things in the play field. So the guy said he'd been playing it for years and it'd been working and all of a sudden it had stopped working. (laughs) So what would have been happening is because the playfield was warped, it was concave. So it was basically like a little little hill in the middle of the playfield and it had risen above where one of these little dragon head sort of sit, which I'll explain a bit later. When that was knocked down, it essentially would have sat in the hole and you wouldn't have been able to get it out. And also, it would have been draining to the left and the right like nobody's business. So if he'd been playing that for a couple of years like that and thinking that was how a normal game should play, I don't know, man. (laughs) Yeah, don't know, man. Anyway, so when I first saw it, I thought to myself, okay, this is not disaster because it's essentially plastic. There's got to be some way of flattening that. If it had been wooden, that would have been an absolute disaster. Now, I don't know much about flattening a wooden playfield. I've seen some posts of some serious horror stories. There was a post, I can't remember where it was, probably Pinside, where, uh, because I was looking up warped playfields, 
and it was a wooden playfield of a brand new in-box game. The guy, for some reason, wasn't able to get his money back. So he had like, he goes, oh, no, this won't do very much. And he had a picture of one of his weights, one of his dumbbells, sitting on a towel on it, like hoping it'll push it back down. It's just, um, yeah, inexcusable. But anyway, luckily for me, it was a plexiglass playfield. Not acrylic, not normal plastic, but actually plexiglass, which is a particular type of acrylic. We can talk about some interesting qualities it has later. I should also mention here that when I enter into a project, I think I've said this many, many, many times, but I'm going to say it again. I'd advise to do your research. If you're looking at buying a Godlieb System 1, for example, look around, see what parts are available, and make sure you can get the worst-case scenario parts that you would need. I'd already looked up Interflip parts, and by chance, there was actually an entire stripped playfield of an Interflip Dragon available for sale by a reputable seller in America. Now, it's all well and good to have that in your back pocket, and that was something I had in mind, but it was priced at about $800 US, and I contacted the seller and he said, yeah, he'd sell it to me, but he had no idea how much it had cost to post. So that would have been a very expensive exercise. So probably for me, looking at about a thousand Australian dollars, maybe a bit more. And to add that on top of what I'd already paid, it certainly wouldn't have been the cheap project I was hoping for. So what did I have to do? Well, I had to strip the entire playfield. And this is something I've actually never done before. I strip the playfield normally, but I don't take everything off. I don't usually bother with metal guide rails, but this time, see, I needed to get the entire playfield off. Now, the good thing about this process was the way Interflip games are made, it's actually a layer of plexiglass on top of a layer of plywood. I didn't have to take any of the under playfield mechanics off at all, which was... Uh, such a win because that would have been a very large project for me. So I just had to take everything off the top, which included, and to be honest, it wasn't as bad as I thought. Metal guide rails are literally just hammered into the playfield with a little bit of a spur on the end of them to hold them into place. So you just literally have to rip them out. And I found when I was putting it all back together that all I needed to do if the holes were a little bit stripped out was to do the old carpenter's trick, which I highly recommend, where you get some toothpicks and you put them in there and you trim them off. So then you put a bit of wood glue and then you've got a brand new hole basically to work with. One thing I really like about pulling apart a play field, you kind of get to know the spirit of the manufacturing, if you will, because you're dealing directly with all the parts. And it's quite an interesting process to go through because when you put it all back together, if things go wrong after that, you've got a head start on where to look. Now, I was loving the design of this game. It's got a lot of really fun little design features that really work for me. As I said, the plexiglass on top of the plywood was good, but I tell you what, man, it makes that playfield heavy. <laughs> Especially in direct comparison to something like Stars, the Stern Electronics one I've waffled on about before. That thing is the lightest thing you'll ever pick up. But man, this playfield, when you add the weight of plexiglass and plywood together, and the plywood seems to be about as thick as a normal playfield, it is a very, very heavy thing indeed. So, I removed everything and got the playfoot out, and sure enough, it was warped like you wouldn't believe. So, I'm thinking, 
What do you do with plastic to reshape it? Well, you heat it and you put, apply pressure. So I had a couple of plans. And to be honest, I wasn't sure that the first couple would work, but I was banking on the third one. So the first thing I did, it was summer in Australia and it gets very hot and very hot in my shed too. So I just simply put some bricks on top of it and left it in my shed. I didn't think that would work and sure enough, it did not. <laughs> it didn't do anything. So my next plan was I'd heard that sometimes when you're restoring pinball machines, there's a substance they put over the play field called mylar that protects the painted artwork. This bubbles over time and sometimes if you're bold enough, you can peel that mylar off and have a nice clean play field underneath. But sometimes when you peel the mylar off, it takes the artwork off and it's a disaster. And I've talked about that in previous episodes of the pinball tapes. That's a crapshoot at best. So I'd heard that a good thing to do before attempting mylar removal was to leave the play field in your car on a hot day to like loosen up the plastic. So I thought maybe I could apply that same theory with my warped play field. So what I did is I got a couple of sheets of old playfield glass and if anyone wants an old sheet of playfield glass please hit me up because <laughs> I tend to replace uh, the playfield glass on nearly every job I do so I've got a bunch of them sitting around and I can't bear to get rid of them but anyway but they're kind of useless because they're scratched anyway so my plan was to sandwich it between a couple of plates of playfield glass put some bricks in that on top and leave it in the car leave it in the open sun for the afternoon now I park in the city in a spot that's bitumenized and there's no shelter so I did that and it got pretty warm in my car, I can tell you that for free. But you know what? Again, did absolutely nothing. So what was my third plan? Well, I'm a very lucky man, and I've talked about this before when I was talking about protecting flaking paint on a back glass by putting a protective coating over the back of it. My wonderful father-in-law, Murray, has a hot press. Now, a hot press is basically, I'll explain it again just quickly, just for those who are tuning in for the first time, and if you are, Welcome. <laughs> you may never listen again with all this tech talk. A hot press is basically a shallow rectangular box that you put things in, clamp it down, and it applies heat and it acts like a vacuum, so it applies pressure as well. My father-in-law uses it for block mounting stuff, so if you want a poster block mounted to a piece of plywood, he can do that sort of thing. So I thought, well, maybe we can do that. So sure enough, I took it over to Murray and he got to work. Now, I researched a bit on plexiglass before we attempted this, and it needs to be pretty damn hot to melt. I'd seen that you need it to be at least oh, 60, 70 degrees or something like that. So we tried it. We put it in there. We heated it up to about 60 degrees and left it for half an hour. Took it out, put some weights on it and came back to it. And it was exactly the same as it was before. Now, I was ready for an afternoon of mucking around. But Murray basically said to me, just leave it with me, Zach. And before I know it, I get a phone call to say that he'd done it. Oh, that man is a legend. So what he did, he actually researched that plexiglass has molecular memory so that you can heat it up all you like, but it will go back to the same state it was before you started heating it, which I think is pretty damn cool. And I think that works well for certain applications. So for future reference, <laughs> for anyone who wants to do this, he heated it up to 95 degrees and left it for 45 minutes. And then he reduced the temperature to 25 degrees and let it cool down for two hours. Now, the trick was as well, when it got down to about 35 to 40 degrees, he took it out and put it on the bench. And the reason for that is it can shatter towards the end of the exercise. So 
he thought getting it down to about 35 degrees and taking it out would help it cool down quicker and maintain its integrity. But you know what? It actually worked. It is flat as a tack. So thankfully, that major chink in the armour was taken care of. Now, once I got this all back together, the good thing about EMs is because they are designed in a similar fashion for many, many years, the online information is almost a one-stop shop. Now, I was dealing with, obviously, a Spanish game. So the Bible of Pinball Restoration Guides, Clay's Guide, or Pin Repair, I think it is. If you search up Pinball Repair from 1980, it will usually come up with this guide, the wonderful guides that Clay did. They're very succinct and wonderful. There was only one EM guide, and it ran you through all the steps you should take from go to woe and a lot of it was deal with the switches clean and adjust all the switches now another thing i discovered by doing an em was the wonderful deconstruction design of the thing basically these are designed to be pulled apart i've had issues in the past moving games because i've got into the habit now of taking off the back box which is the safest way of transporting a game especially if you're dealing with a real back glass that you can put safely on your back seat of your car where they don't come apart as easily as I would like. I might be missing some key, I might be missing something here, but the way EMs are designed is just wonderful and very intuitive. There are these big plugs, and I believe they're called Jones plugs. You can take the back box off by unplugging four of them, and it's as simple as that. And the playfield also can be unplugged from the cabinet, and all three bits can be easily removed. Now, this was amazing for me. I love my time in my car hole, but I also like sitting down on the couch. <laughs> I guess I sound like many men out there and, and ladies. So what I was able to do was I was able to take out the entire guts of the machine, the entire play field and the back box separately, of course, put them on a table in front of me and work on them while I, wa well, and work on them while I was watching some series on Netflix or something. And it's a really good thing to do to get the play field out and have it on the bench. It's just so much easier to deal with, and you can reach everything that you need to reach, and there's no back-breaking angles. Also, while we're talking about switches, there is a very tried-and-true method to dealing with switches. Now, I went and bought myself a Dremel. Now, Dremel is basically a, a rotary tool that fits in the palm of your hand. It's a neat little thing, and it comes with about a million attachments. What you want here is you want the attachment that polishes. So I had that on hand because I'd heard with many restoration videos and literature that everyone has a Dremel to clean switch contacts. It's very simple. You get some ethanol and you wipe them down. You get the Dremel and you give them a quick buffing up. You don't have to give it for a long time. Then you wipe them down with ethanol again. Boom. Nice and shiny. This process makes so much sense. Go over the whole thing. Do all the switches because... There's nothing worse than getting into a project after you put it all back together and then chasing your tail. And the good thing is, if you look at a relay, which is a group of switches, on this EM, and I think it's normal for most relays, there's a white plate that is triggered by a coil when activated, and it opens certain switches and closes certain switches, or it might open them all, or it might close them all. To me, it seemed fairly intuitive, just playing around with it, without looking at a schematic. When you push that little plate manually, you can usually see what's supposed to do what, whether that switch is supposed to open, whether that switch is supposed to close. So I just use common sense there, and for the most part, I think I got it over the line.
So I put the baby back together and I turned it on. And I was kind of hoping, as you always do, that it was just going to work. But oh no, it sure did not. So what was my next problem? Well, my next problem was one I was expecting. The dude who sold it to me sent me a video. And it's a very common EM problem where the score motor in the cabinet just keeps running. Now, the score motor is attempting to reset the game back to zero. So the switches all need to be back in the zero position. Certain things need to be on, certain things need to be off, etc., etc. Now, the issue with this problem is it could actually be the score motor itself. But in equal parts, it could be something else. So perhaps one of my failings in this spot was I workshopped some parts of the game before I hit the score motor itself. But in saying that, the first thing I did was look at the score reels. So I took the back box off, put it on a table, sat down in front of the TV and workshopped the whole thing. Now, the thing about EMs is you can't be afraid to take stuff apart because the main problem with EMs, and I remember I got really good advice from the tech I chatted to many, many years ago, that the big thing about EMs is cleaning everything. So pulling it all apart, cleaning it, and putting it back together. Because the amount of gunk that builds up in these things is quite amazing. So the score reels are no exception. So you need to get in there and pull everything apart and clean it. So that's pretty much what I did. So I did that with all the score reels. That took me a few nights and put it all back together. And it did exactly the same thing. <laughs> so, what is my next protocol? Well, I'd workshop the cabinet in this sort of process. If you've at least done the due diligence, where you'd workshop the switches in the cabinet, you workshopped the score reels, you'd gone through and straightened everything, checked that everything was in the right spots. Some things did elude me for a while, but I found that on the whole, this process really paid off with that approach. I didn't have to. I only had to revisit one switch that I'd got slightly out of whack and all the other switches were working correctly. It was actually different areas of the game that I hadn't thought about. So schematic reading. Now this has been a real learning curve for me. It is actually quite intuitive once you sit down and work through it. So with the dragon, there's no manual. There was a schematic, which was actually pretty great that it was still in the game. So I was pleased about that. It's about the length of two A3 bits of paper. So it all folds out and it's quite an extensive one. Now I've had some luck following the lines. The interesting thing about this schematic, and I haven't looked at many EM ones, but I think it's fairly similar, is it can actually show you where the switches have to sit on certain mechanical parts. The reason this was important to me is that one thing you have to make sure is that the score motor in the cabinet can return to the zero position. Now, I had no idea what the zero position was, but I've since realized it's the reset position. But how do you find the zero position? And, and in, in retrospect, it is obviously what they show in the schematic. So that's the zero position. So that's where it has to be. The score motor in the Dragon is basically a drum with a number of discs on it that have ridges on them. And as the whole drum turns, there are stacks of switches that are actuated in different ways and they basically fall into the little gaps or they raise up on the ridges. It's really quite interesting to watch because as it rotates, the switches go up and down in different ways. And that's a pretty layman's way of describing it, but I, th <laughs> I think that'll do for now. 
And between these stacks of switches, there are little nylon spaces that allow switches located above other switches to actuate. So if one of these little nylon spaces is missing, for example, the whole motor cannot reset because it can't properly actuate that switch. And that is exactly the problem I had. So a tiny little piece of plastic, not even the size of half, probably the size of half my small fingernail, was missing. And the reason I realized that is because in the schematic it shows spaces and switches and how it all works. So what I could do is I could hand turn the barrel. I had to be a bit careful because I didn't want to break the motor to the zero position, but it still wasn't working because that spacer was missing. The good thing about a pinball machine is if something like that goes missing, it must have just dropped off after years, it's always in the cabinet. So because it had been sack-trucked in, literally vac-wrapped and sack-trucked, there was a whole lot of detritus there was a pile of dirt and screws and old globes at the back of the machine. And lo and behold, the spacer was in there. As an aside too, one of the main units of an EM called a stepper unit wasn't bolted to the bottom of the cabinet. Oh my gosh. So that was rattling around for the entire journey. Luckily again though, EMs are designed to be extremely robust and nothing was broken on that thankfully. So anyway, found that little spacer and I glued it back into place. And lo and behold, it let me play a game. Unbelievable. And I tell you what, that was a special moment. But if you think my journey ended there, my friend, I've got more to impart to you. Okay. So I'd finally got the machine back to a state where you could actually play a game. But it was doing something very odd, and this took a lot of head scratching. As an aside, I found myself with the opportunity to get games, and many of them have ended up being right on the cusp of when electromechanical games became solid-state games. And I've mentioned this many times before, but solid-state games are when circuit boards were invented. So... All of a sudden, a pinball machine could be driven by a circuit board as opposed to the mechanical computer logic that is electromechanical games. The Dragon is no different, and even though it's an electromechanical game, it actually has a soundboard, which is really unusual. Now, the sounds on this game I will talk about later because they're amazing, but it was doing this really weird thing where you would trigger one of the switches, it would trigger one of the switches, and they're very odd high-pitched squeaking sounds at the best of time. But it would sustain that sound and squeak for a long time. So it was really quite unnerving. And I also had this issue where the score motor would all of a sudden stop working, usually in conjunction with this problem. Now, oh, the score motors. Of course, being a rare Spanish-made game, they are Cruze motors or Creuset, I don't know how you say it, but basically French motors. So there's one in the cabinet that rotates the score motor, and there's another one in the back box. Now I'd perused some threads about this motor, and the word on the street was that it was an absolute pain in the ass to take apart and put back together. I didn't find it too bad, but it definitely was something I had to be very careful with. It's kind of made like a watch. The idea was to pull them apart, clean them, 
re-grease them and put them back together. And because they were made a bit like a watch, I mean, I imagine Mr. Dennis Creasel of the Eclectic Gamers podcast and the Pinball Show, who does a show on watches on YouTube, would laugh at me saying they're like watches. But to me, <laughs> because there was only about four gears in it, to be fair, but to me, this was quite a complicated thing. And I had to make sure I was very diligent with photos. So I pulled it apart, cleaned it all up. So I got both the motors, one in the back box, one in the cabinet, pulled them apart, cleaned them, and put them back together. Now, as an aside here, I pulled these motors apart so many times. <laughs> if anyone needs advice on how to disassemble and reassemble a Cruze motor for an interflip game, please don't hesitate to hit me up. Man, I must be the world expert. I did it so many times. So even after pulling them apart, cleaning and putting them back together, the problem still remained. I'd be playing the game for a while. A switch would trigger the squealing sound of the soundboard, freaking out what happened, and then the motor would stop spinning. Then I noticed something happening in the back box. The ball in play counter wasn't turning over very quickly. So basically it was taking a really long time to change from ball one to ball two, etc., etc. So when the ball was plunged, if it hit a switch before the ball in play clicked over, it was just freaking the hell out of the machine. It was causing these squeals. It was also doing random stuff where it would um, fire off scores onto different players, which was pretty funny. <laughs> so I, I actually had a night inadvertently when I first got this game together to try and play with a group of mates. Not just that game, but the other games as well. And we played it for about five minutes and then it stopped working. But it would have been doing exactly that, basically throwing scores into different people's um, games, which is hilarious. So I thought, well, obviously there's something wrong with the uh, the motor in the back box. So I carefully pulled that apart again, made sure the gears were all okay. And on the other end of the motor, there's actually a magnetized drum that rotates around when electricity is applied to the motor. It is magnetized, the drum spins around and allows the motor to work. Now this motor had kind of degraded, it was flaking off a bit, and it was actually really quite difficult to realign when I put it back together, because these motors kind of rotate on their own axis, and I think that's mainly what people were talking about. The easiest way of pulling apart these motors is to start from the top and take it all apart, but I somehow managed to start, so I was avoiding that problem the whole time. So I pulled that apart, I cleaned it up, I gave it a bit of um, Teflon lube, <laughs> which is the best thing you can use for lubing any parts, only if it's metal on metal parts, but obviously you generally don't use any lube on a pinball machine at all, but for score motors, it's not a bad idea. But I wasn't really satisfied with the way it came back together, and to be honest, it didn't make much difference. So, I had to find myself one of these rare Cruze motors. But luckily, as I explained earlier, I'd done some research prior to buying this game, so as luck would have it, so as luck would have it, at flippers.com, shout out to you guys, they were fantastic. They actually had some new old stock Cruze motors. Now the issue was they weren't exactly the same. The part that actually attached to the score motor drums wasn't the same. Um, but basically the motor was the same specs. So Look, they weren't too expensive. I think it was about three or 400 bucks, but I didn't want to replace both of them if I didn't have to. And I kind of theorized that I could use half for one motor 
and the gears, the brand new gears for the other one, and that would solve all my problems. So that was my theory. So after a bit of toing and froing and making sure I had the right thing, I ordered that. It arrived, and I pulled it apart, and I used and I used the motor section, and I used the actual motorized section for the back box motor, and voila, it worked like grease lightning. Oh yeah, baby! So it was all happening. So I was able to play a game. Play ball in play was flicking over really quick, but things were still not all good in the den of the dragon. So it's interesting in a process like this, how you can assume that you've figured out the problem, but actually you're fooling yourself. (laughs) And that's the trap that can happen from workshopping games and having little to no clue basically what you're doing, I guess. There's probably a lesson in that somewhere. Nah, I don't pay attention to that sort of thing. So what was happening was I was able to play a game. It was all working fine. Then the score motor the one in the cabinet, would stop working. It would just stop spinning around. So I was like, okay, well, what's happening there? So I would so I would take it out, pull it apart, check the gears. So it seemed like one of the gears was getting out of alignment, which is why I switched them over with brand new gears when I got that other motor in. Put it back together, and then it would play X amount of games, and it would do the same thing again and again. And every time I pulled it apart and put it back together... It worked again, and I was thinking to myself, well, inside the gears seemed quite solid. And so this was a real noodle scratcher because everything seemed quite solid inside the motor. And these Creuset motors are actually quite distinctive because they have a red plastic band around them. And what I'd actually done is I'd workshopped a clear plastic band so I could see what the motor was doing when it was in situ. So, you know, in the end, it didn't amount to much, but... It was a good exercise in craft, and it definitely let me see inside the motor, even though it didn't solve the problem. So what was going on? So after careful observation, I realized that the motor was actually still spinning, though it appeared to have stopped working. So it wasn't actually rotating the score drum anymore. So I pulled apart the motor for the millionth time, and sure enough, what was going on was, so one of the actuating gears directly attached to the spinning motor had a hairline fracture in it and was coming loose. So it was simple as that. So the motor was spinning and it wasn't actually able to engage the rest of the gears. So all I did was I took it off, applied some super glue, carefully put it all back together and voila, it has worked ever since. Oh, (laughs) so that was about three, two and a half months, I reckon, mucking around. It's amazing. I know I've waffled on for a long time, but being able to summarize that is quite cathartic for me because, man, I tell you what, that was a big journey. But one more problem remained, and to this day, I have 85% of the problem solved, and it's enough to drive a man nuts. So what's the final piece of the puzzle that I'm still annoyed about? Well, I had this really odd thing happen to me, and I've seen it before on games, but a flipper rebuild usually sorts it out. So I'm talking about a flipper repelling problem. So what was happening was, 
So you have the flipper in an upright position. The ball comes careening down from the play field. It hits the flipper. The flipper dips a little bit and then flicks the ball up again. So this is enough to drive you insane because what it means is making certain pinball manoeuvres, like a live catch and a drop catch, are actually really difficult when this is happening all the time. When I got on the forums and asked the question about solving this issue, the first thing people suggested, as I expected, was to do with the end of stroke switch. I've talked about the end of stroke switch many, many times on this podcast, and that's a switch that changes the flipper coil from high power to low power. So when you're holding up the flipper, it doesn't burn out the coil. The adjustment of that is obviously a very important part of the game. And I adjusted those, I adjusted those 50 times and it didn't make any difference which position it was. It did the same thing every time. Now a very wizened local restorer said anytime he's had that problem, he's done a flipper rebuild and the problem has gone away. Now the problem, <laughs> the issue with this is that because I was dealing with an electromechanical Spanish game, this is where I really came unstuck. The coils for this game are bespoke to Interflip. So you cannot actually replace the coils on this game. Now, in saying that, maybe you can, but the issue you face with the flippers and the advice that I was given is that if you replace them for stronger coils which most coils are, these have a, an odd voltage, 35 volt, which is a bit weird, that it might start breaking parts on the game because this game is super fast as it is. So by replacing them with faster coils, you're more likely to break parts and there are some very bespoke parts of this game. So this is the first time I haven't actually been able to buy an off-the-shelf flipper rebuild. So I did the full clean, put it all back together thing and it was still doing this flipper problem. So my next step was to actually replace the flipper mechanics altogether. Now, this is something I've never done before, and it was an interesting learning curve. The recommendation was to use the WPC, or the Williams Pinball Controller era flippers, because they are rated as being the best ever made. Now, the issue with this was because it was going from electromechanical flippers to a more modern style of flipper, the mechanics were totally different. The electromechanical flippers have got the bits all separately attached to the playfield. Whereas with a WPC flipper mechanic, they are actually all mounted on their own plate. So I had to do some serious jimming around on the underside of the playfield. And another issue I came across was because the Interflip Dragon has a plexiglass layer on top of a wooden layer, it's actually a lot thicker than most playfields. So I had to use the same flipper bats because they were a certain length. I didn't look around super hard to be fair because I really wanted to use the flipper bats because they're kind of cool. But most flipper bats aren't as long as these ones. And I also had a problem where I had to actually chock up the flipper plates with a bit of plywood to get them at the right height so that the flipper shaft coming through was at the right spot. It was actually a lot of fudging around, but I managed to fit them all in. Another problem with these coils is that they're a lot smaller than the Williams coils that come with the actual kit. So I had to repro that and drill some extra holes to fit the coil in place. So I did all that, managed to put it all in, and the flippers actually worked. And I had another problem where they wouldn't grip properly, so I had to grind down some of the teeth on them and do... Oh, yeah, there was a lot of mucking around. So they're in place. I got them working. 
but the problem still remains. I mean, in saying that, went from being a problem that happened, you know, I would say 90% of the time and now it only happens 20% of the time. So I think I'm just going to have to deal with that problem. I think what it boils down to is the coils aren't strong enough to keep the flippers in the hold position or the upright position. So there's not quite enough strength there. And so when a and because this game is super fast, when a fastball hits it, it knocks it back in place a bit. If I could replace the, the coils, I think that problem would go away. And I believe there are some online, but considering it works most of the time, it's just something I'm going to deal with, I think. I did actually read some posts where people who have EMs said, oh, this happens in all of my games and I just deal with it. <laughs> See, stuff like this keeps me up at night. But you know what? That's part of the fun with these old games. Sometimes you just got to deal with some of the quirks. So that's the end of my restoration journal. Hope that wasn't too boring for you. I just, I don't know, it was such a mission. I just wanted to kind of document it out there. I started actually putting together a written document with pictures and I ran out of steam for that. <laughs> and I thought to myself, well, look, I do a podcast already. I have been so tardy with podcasts. So why not give any listeners that are still out there an extra long one? And they will hopefully find it a bit useful. And I hope I haven't scared anyone because trust me, it's a really rewarding process. And it is all about taking the time to do due diligence before you power up the game. I would strongly advise anyone attempting electromechanical repair, sit down with the switches, do the time, and it pays off in the end. So let's talk about our feature game for the day. We're of course talking about, for those of you who've just joined us for this part of the discussion, I kind of feel offended, but I don't blame you at the same time. We're of course talking about the wonderful 1977 Interflip Dragon. Ooh, yeah. I'll tell you what, after putting this baby back together and thoroughly enjoying the process, I've fallen in love with the game. Quite frankly, between you and me, it's a love affair. And I think it's a forever game. Because it, it's one of those games where I feel like I'll never probably see one again. I mean, though they are around in the American scene and they exported a decent amount of them, I just get the feeling this might be my last chance to have one of these. I mean, you know, never say never. And maybe I'll uh, move it on. At this stage, it's feeling like a forever machine. It's definitely got that one more, one more kind of vibe to it. And with these older games, that's what you want. They're short, fast games but you feel like you can do better the next time. So a little bit of background about this company, because to be honest, there's not much information out there. So Interflip was actually their export name. The company name is Recreativos Franco. They're based in Madrid in Spain. And I actually thought I had found the designer's name on the playfield, because just above the flippers, underneath the illuminated Interflip sign, which looks delightful, it says Rufino Gonzalez 25 Madrid, Spain. <laughs> and for a moment I thought, oh, it's Rufino Gonzalez who did it when he was 25 from Madrid in Spain. That's amazing. But no, that's actually a street address. So when I researched that, it actually gave me the site where Recreativos Franco used to be. And it turned out to be a center of innovation and technology, which I thought was kind of great. And there's some really cool uh, pictures of the building. So if you get fired up one day and you're bored to look for something, get on Google Earth and search Rufino Gonzalez 
or Gonzalez, 25 Madrid, Spain. And you'll see where the Interflip company used to be. There was actually a vibrant pinball industry in Europe throughout the 70s and right into the 80s as well. There was manufacturers like Sonic, Ricel, Playmatic and Interflip. And they all came from Spain. There was also companies like Bell Games and the wonderful Zachariah from Italy. Zachariah Games, whoa, I've got my eye out to get one of those. They are really interesting games. And again, that'll probably be a bit of a journey because unlike a lot of the big American manufacturers, that's one of those games where there's no guarantee that somebody's going to be able to fix the board if there's a problem with it. So that's the only trade-off. But in saying that, there seems to be lots of them around. So, um, yeah, I'm definitely keen to get one of those. And considering it's my namesake game, um, in fact, there's a great game called Magic Castle and there's a Count Zacula that appears on the back glass. <laughs> if that's not my game, I don't know what is. And um, as I said, there's not much information on uh, Recreativos Franco. They manufactured pinball machines from 1975 to 1986, and they made at least one bingo game in 1991. They made 11 games during this period, but only exported four under the Interflip moniker, and they were Dragon, Alaska, Cherokee, and Full. All these games had a very similar flipper and outline setup. And they are all stunning to look at because, as I might have mentioned earlier, they all have plexiglass playfield. I haven't seen all of these, obviously, because they seem to be quite rare. I saw an Alaska for sale at one stage, but I haven't seen any other ones around. But because they were plexiglass playfields, they are all absolutely in mint condition to this very day. They actually silkscreen the art on the underside, so there's no ball wear whatsoever. Now the dragon. It's a symmetrical playfield, I should start out saying, which I really like. I guess it's visually satisfying for a start because it's beautifully put together. And it's quite nice because the playfield plastics, though they're very similar each side, they're slightly different and they've obviously been hand drawn. And so there's enough difference just to give you a little idea that it's been put together by hand, which is wonderful. It's kind of fun because once you've got the left hand side shot, in theory, you've got the right-hand side shot, but it never quite works that way, I find, during the game. It's all well and good to say that, but it's still a big challenge to get your um, to get your shots on target. This game also, because of the plexiglass playfield, is super fast. Oh, boy. I tell you what, I uh, rebuilt the pop bumpers, and it gets nuts. It's not too fast, whereas you can't play it. Like, I think I've set mine at quite a good level. But at the same time, if you get that ball moving and it comes rocketing back down the middle, you're in all sorts of trouble. I've never actually owned a pinball machine with an almost frictionless playfield like this, and it is truly astonishing watching it bounce around the place. As I mentioned in the other section as well, at length, it was really good to deal with, like as far as pulling it apart, like even though it took me a long time and lots of noodle scratching to figure out the main problems with the game, it actually was really well made as far as everything comes apart beautifully. And it would be no problem transporting it in the same vein because you can pull the head box off, unplug everything. It doesn't take very long. It's all really nicely done. But I tell you what, it is heavy. Woo-wee, as I mentioned before, this thing has got so much in it. There's all switches in the cabinet. There's switches in the back box. There's score reels. There's mechanics. It's just a really heavy beast. And the playfield itself is super heavy as well. Because unlike normal playfields, which usually just have a wooden top, this has got plexiglass on top of a wooden playfield that looks to be about the same thickness as a normal playfield. So dealing with it in general is a bit of a mission. But yeah, it means it's designed to last, right?
let's talk about the artwork. Oh man, I tell you what, I mean, I, you know me, I get really excited about, <laughs> about everything to do with pinball machines, but this is stunning artwork. But this back glass has got it all. You're in the thick of action. You're basically the dragon slayer trying to save your unconscious and beautiful alien lady who's being attacked by a five-headed dragon. I can't think of a more noble pursuit than that. The dragon too seems to be coming out of a star or a black hole and you're standing on a craggy cliff, barefoot, shirtless, in a green spotted loincloth with a shaved head and a ponytail. <laughs> Bright pink skin, bravely screaming a war cry as you hold on to one of the necks of the dragon. You're definitely giving off a Native American Indian warrior alien vibe. And in your left hand, you're about to strike with a glowing disc that's cupped in the palm of your hand. Such an awesome concept for a game. The color palette's amazing too. Lots of pinks, lots of oranges. The dragon riding is sort of coming at you from the rear of the scene. And the dragon heads are all looking in different directions with glazed looks on their eyes. There's a particularly funny one in the bottom right-hand corner who looks like he's going, uh -huh, <laughs> which is awesome. And your beautiful unconscious lady is lying on the ground with her green hair splayed everywhere, and you're essentially kind of standing on top of her, <laughs> trying to save the day. The plexiglass playfield as well is just spectacular. As I said, because it is plexiglass, it is in mint condition. There's lots of oranges, yellows, and blues. The dragon heads themselves are bright yellow that pop up from the playfield, and I've got the image of the top half of the dragon's mouth and the eyes on them, which looks wonderful. You're standing in the middle of the playfield, super pink, loincloth on, almost in a discobolus pose. Looks like you're flinging something at them, which I'm assuming would mean that you're throwing a pinball at them. And I guess on the back glass, even though it looks like a black flat disc with a spark coming off it, I guess that's meant to be a pinball. I'm guessing that's kind of their interpretation because that would make sense. So you're standing, you've got the bonus lights in an arc behind your butt with the five dragon heads fanned out beautifully in front of you. And they're all yellows and greens and twirling up towards their various spots. There's only a few plastics of your damsel in distress looking seductive and sultry. And they've been hand-drawn, utilising her beautiful green hair, which is spiralling up towards the top of the playfield. The whole playfield itself is almost like it's in orange flame, which is beautiful. It kind of starts out blue, transitions to yellow, and then is mostly orange up the back. The cabinet's really interesting too. I wouldn't describe it as stunning, but it <laughs> it's definitely stands out. It's got an interesting sort of almost crazing effect on it. It's kind of like squiggly black splatters all over it as well as some different colored stars but it kind of makes the cabinet look like it's super old and it's cracked but it isn't and it was really interesting workshopping this game it has got a very distinct smell now i don't know what type of wood they were using in spain at the time but i've heard pinball restorers saying it it's like they um glued matchsticks together <laughs> to make it now i didn't find the cabinet that bad but mine is falling apart a bit at the back when I got it delivered, the guy said, oh, so you're going to restore it? <laughs> and he's talking about the cabinet. The funny thing is, in my sort of space, the cabinet's not a main feature, so it's not as much of an issue for me, and cabinets don't really bother me that much. A working play field, that's a different story altogether. Now, the cabinet art itself is amazing. You've got your damsel in distress in the nude, <laughs> getting dragged by the dragons, 
into a black hole and it kind of looks like they're sucking her hair into their mouths. So her hair is almost like it's on fire as well. So (laughs) it's quite a stunning image and she almost looks a little bit feline. They've added something around her eyes that makes her look like she's almost turning into a cat. The back box art's great too. It's got our tribal hero, a large picture of his head with his green ponytail spiralling in front of him and yelling his war cry with no pupils in his eyes. So it looks super creepy. But yeah, generally, it's one of those things again. I wish I knew who the artist was because as far as the full package goes, it is an extremely impressive looking game. And I kind of like that the colours are a bit more muted on the cabinet because it got kind of greens and sort of off-white and a bit of black as well, but that's about it. But when you actually see the play field, it really pops. I've done a little bit of modding with some lights on mine. These days, I always do a trough illumination kit so I can see what's going on because I like to play in a dark room. I've also been into post lights, which you can get little lights you put under your posts, and that illuminates the play field beautifully. And I've just put them in some subtle spots where you wouldn't necessarily realize that they've been added. An absolutely beautiful looking game. So let's talk about the flipper end of the machine. In classic EM style, the gap is huge. (laughs) I reckon you could fit maybe three, three and a half pinballs in that gap. (laughs) It is serious. Some people look at that gap and just go, wow. It's interesting though, I find that aside from the occasional brutal straight down the middle shot, because sometimes there is absolutely nothing you can do, I think it would make it a little bit too easy. I mean, it could have done with a post, perhaps, but, you know, that's the way it was designed, and that's the way it goes. So there's no slingshots on either sides of the flippers. You've got three rollover button lanes above each flipper, and they correspond with the rollover lanes up the top. So basically numbers one to five. They're sort of set out in an interesting way, which I'll talk about later. And when you roll over the lanes, they extinguish the lights because the lights start out lit, and they light different things on the playfield. The far left and right lanes act as an out lane because directly below it, it can go straight down to the drain. There's also a little rubber post there, so it gives you a, a slight chance to wobble the ball out of trouble. And then you've got a wire form that takes it down to the flippers. So it's quite an interesting design. They decided to go with that for all of their games, which is I find really interesting. So I'm assuming it was the same designer who designed all these games. I mean, I don't really know. It's such a pity because it'd be good to give them fair due because it's a beautifully designed game. But I really kind of like the way it's done. And also the rollover lanes have got no rubbers on them whatsoever. They're all metal. So once the ball hits it, you've got little to no chance of diverting it into a different one. You've got to be on the ball to give it a wobble because sometimes that wobble can put it to death. That's the thing about nudging. Sometimes you're better off leaving it, but you never quite know, do you? Well, the good players do. (laughs) With this setup also, it makes the dead drop pass, which can be a real buddy in this game, quite a dangerous prospect because what can often happen And I guess I'll quickly explain the dead drop pass again. If you weren't familiar, that's when you basically do nothing. You leave the flippers in the static position. And as the ball is coming down, you let it hit one flipper and bounce to the other. It's a really good maneuver to slow down the pace of the ball. But you've got to make sure there's enough power on the ball so it'll go from one flipper to the other. The trouble is with the dragon is when you do that, you can hit one flipper to the other and just keep rolling and roll, roll, and drain. Because it can kind of roll over the back. So you can stall the ball on the flipper. 
But if it goes too far back towards the left and right-hand side of the game, it'll drain. And if you look at the picture of it, it's probably good to pick up the play field. And I should say, obviously, look up the International Pinball Database, the IPDB, and look up Interflip Dragon, and there's plenty of photos... So let's talk about the main crux and feature of this game. Now, with these older games, if there's something interesting and particularly unique about them, I'm really drawn to them, and this one is no exception. It has got this amazing setup. So basically, the idea of the game is you're the dragon slayer and you're beheading the five-headed dragon one head at a time to try and defeat it. So on the play field... We have what are called knockdown targets. Now, I've never seen these on a game before in my life. And there is another interflip game called Full, which is a bowling game, which has the same ones. There may be variations on other games, but I've never seen anything like it. It's interesting. They're kind of shark fin shaped and the heads stick up. And there's three sort of in the middle of the play field, almost level. And then there's another two a bit closer. They look like, and I had a mate come round and play the game and straight away, this might be referencing... <laughs> <laughs> an old Australian thing that nobody remembers, but there was an old comic strip called Snake, and it literally was about a cartoon snake and the shenanigans he got up to. It was in the same kind of era as Garfield and Peanuts and that for me, and it totally looks like that. So these are yellow shark fin-shaped targets. So you've got the dragon's face, and he's opening his mouth. So you've got half the mouth on the target and the other half on the play field, and they're beautifully designed because whether they're up or down, they kind of match the artwork with the play field which is so beautifully done. Mine are a little bit faded because obviously they've taken knocks over the years. Still, they look amazing. And so these are incredible. I've never seen a mechanism like it. There are so many switches under there that have to do different things and send signals to different parts of the machine. It's quite uncanny. So the main aim of the game, and what I love about this game, is you can get someone who doesn't play pinball very much. They can walk up to the game and you go, what do you think you need to do? And it looks very simple. Do I knock down those targets? Yep, that's what you do. So you've got the five targets that you have to knock down. And when they fall down, they fall down flush with the play field. And as I explained in my long spiel about how I brought this baby back to life, when the play field was warped and the middle target would fall flush... It wouldn't fall flush, it'd fall below the play field. Or I would imagine the ball would have sat in that gap. And it's interesting because that middle target is slightly back a bit because it's taken so much of abuse <laughs> with a ball sitting on top of it over the years. But it's great because the flyer doesn't say very much, but it does actually say, the dragons of our new and revolutionary system do not detain the ball at all. They just drop very smoothly. <laughs> so they're very proud of this, and they should be. And it pretty much delivers. Like I was expecting that when they fall flat with the play field, that the ball would be hopping all over the place. But to be honest, they're really well designed, and they hardly ever cause a problem. I had to adjust the middle one because it was a little bit dented back, but um, it actually works really well, all things considered. As far as who invented this, well, as you can imagine, there's not much information out there. It seems like there may have been an Italian designer who came before. There's a game called Big Brave by Benza of Milan that has similar sort of targets. So that might have been the origin of that one. They're right there, not too far away from the flippers. So they're pretty much all sort of clustered about halfway up the play field. And it's a brilliant design because it's obviously very clear what you need to do. And it looks quite simple. I tell you what, whoa, it is devilishly 
hard to do. Quite interesting the way it's been put together because oh, they know you think it's going to be easy, but it's one of those things where it's not impossible to do. Like I've done it a number of times, but it's just not as easy as you think. And you can go a good session with players and not many people will get them all down because it's always that last one. And as far as the mechanism goes, it's got some really interesting things I've never seen before. Like, you know, I'm no expert, as I often say, but there's a switch that actually works as the target is dropping, engages it very briefly, and then lets it go again. And I think that's for the sound. I'll preface this by saying it's got a soundboard, but I'll talk about that later because that is, again, one of the the most amazing features of this game. And I'll talk about that when we get to the sound section. To their credit, what are we looking at? 46 years old? And these mechs are still rock solid and they work really reliably. And yeah, they are just fantastic. Now I gave the game away a little bit in the earlier section because the big surprise of this one is obviously the sound. Now, as I mentioned before, but I'll say it again, I seem to be drawn to games right on the cusp, the late 70s, early 80s, when the transition from electromechanical to solid state happened. A classic example of this is my Stern Electronic Stars game, which is all solid state except it has chimes. So this baby is electromechanical, but it has a soundboard. And luckily my soundboard worked because uh, I don't know how I go getting that fixed. So thankfully it all works fine. It sounds a little wacky, So I'm not sure whether that's the nature of the game or not, but I love it. So the big sound on this game, and the one that everyone takes away with them, is the sound you get when you knock over a dragon's head. (laughs) I've seen somebody's actually mocked up a t-shirt. It was a thread I looked at, and it's written as Ba'u, but it's like... (laughs) On the flyer, it says, When you knock down the dragon heads, you get the fascinating howling sound of a dying dragon. (laughs) And I'll play it again for you here. I just love the idea of a meeting in Recreativos Franco, and they went, this is the sound we're going to use. It sounds like a dying dragon. Everyone went, yeah, that's a great idea. Because <laughs> I love it, but it's ridiculous as a concept. But it's fantastic, isn't it? And it's something that everybody loves, because every time you knock down a head, you get that. And it's interesting the way EMs work, because if you knock them down reasonably quickly in succession, the pitch slightly changes. And I think that would be a quirk of the soundboard, just trying to catch up with the sound. I don't really know for fact, but that doesn't often happen. If you slowly knock them down, they seem to make the same hilarious mooing sound every time. There's also a bunch of excellent sounds on this game. We have the rollover buttons on either side, which I'll talk about, and they all make this kind of high-pitched squeaking sound, and you can get them almost happening in machine gun fashion. It's a really odd sound. It's just kind of like a a squeal almost. And uh, by dissecting the sound, you can kind of figure out what they were trying to impart to you as you're playing. Because like every good game, the idea is that you understand what's going on without looking up. The playfield does that beautifully, but they are also trying to impart the same message to you with the sounds. Now, I originally thought, even from dissecting the sounds, the higher the score, the higher the pitch. But that isn't actually the case. I I think the soundboard is freaking out, trying to play the lower tones. Because I know with Stars, my Stern Electronics game, the lower the chime, 
the higher the score. And when you get the 100,000, you get the really low chance, which is a delicious moment. So this is doing the same thing, but when you get the higher scores, it really does fritz out. So to start from the beginning, I guess, you've got the unlit rollover buttons that are worth 100 points. So that's kind of like, that's where the squeal, the real squeak comes from. And then when they're lit, they're worth 1,000 each. And the sounds work in conjunction with the score reel counting up your scores. So in theory, if you got really attuned to it, you'd be able to know what numerical value is going up by listening to the soundboard. And as I was saying, as the score gets higher, the tones tend to freak out <laughs> a lot more, which is awesome. So the 10,000 sounds like this, and the 100,000 sounds like this. <laughs> which I really love. And when you get them all happening together, it's a beautiful melange of sounds. It's kind of a squeak and a straining crackle and a bow and all sorts of things happening all at once. And yeah, I love it. I just love stuff like this. It's like a patina on a fine piece of furniture. The soundboard is kind of aging with the system itself. Now don't get me wrong, if it gets really bad, I might attempt to try and get it fixed. But again, the downfall of choosing these rarer games is that it's not gonna be as easy to get fixed. So I would imagine this circuit board it's pretty limited in the sounds it can make because there's only a few of them. But um, they but they add to the whole feel of the game by having this very odd way of punctuating the gameplay. And when you add this lovely sound, and if you're not familiar with EMs, the sound of the score reels turning around would be a halcyon trigger for many people. I do remember hearing about, you know, when they move from score reels to digital displays, how lots of people are up in arms are like, oh, I don't want that to happen sort of thing because there's something about the sound of score rules, especially if you play a four-player game and then start up again and they all reset. It's a beautiful, beautiful sound to behold. So let's talk about the gameplay. This is one of those games where it's easy to understand but difficult to master. And it's one of those, I just want to come back again and again and again. <laughs> I'm actually standing in front of it now thinking, maybe we can play a few games. But no, I'm going to persist. The main aim of the game is to slay the dragon so you're knocking down all five heads. Every time you hit a dragon target down, you get 5,000 points and it also adds 10,000 points to your bonus. So once you've knocked them all down, the middle kick-out hole, which is about three quarters of the way up the playfield, directly in the centre, is lit up for special, which gives you a free game and 5,000 points. Now, I had a bit of a revelation when I was learning all about Stern Electronic Stars, because on solid-state games, you can change the special, which usually gives you a free credit, and would be brilliant if you're in the wild, you know, at a fish and chip shop or whatever, that would be great. But at home, it's quite nice to add some points to that. And on stars, I've even seen in high-level competition, that's what they've obviously done. You can get 100,000 points with the special on stars. So I'd like to do the same on this. And it's something that I haven't looked into, but I know with EMs, when it comes to messing around with modifying rules, it's literally about moving wires. So I might hit up someone a little bit more technically advanced than me because in this game, it's really difficult to get all five dragon heads down and then get that shot. The only issue with that shot is that you can do it over and over and over and over again. So you could essentially get lots of points or you could get 10 free games but in saying that this game is actually really quite difficult so I think a little jackpot there would be an excellent option
So now I'm going to jump to what is arguably the best point scoring spot in the game. And that's the pop bumpers up the back. When they're unlit, they're worth a thousand a hit. But when they're lit, they're worth 10,000 points every time the ball touches them. And the way you light them is after you plunge the ball, up the back you've got lanes one to five. Lane one lights the pop bumper on the left. Lane three lights the pop bumper in the middle. And lane five lights the pop bumper on the right. Thing about number three is, as far as a skill shot goes, that's probably your best bet because you can't get three easily anywhere else on the play field because though the numbers correspond to the rollover lanes on either side of the flippers, number three lane is the far left and right lane and that's the one where you're likely to drain. So number three is kind of the skill shot up. And I've gone through the motions with this as well. Yes, you want to get number three. Is that a definitive strategy to help you not die straight away? (laughs) No, it really isn't. Once the ball starts rocketing around in the pop bumpers, it is anyone's game. And you're almost guaranteed to hit the pop bumpers straight away after coming through the rollover lanes. And as I mentioned earlier, when you get the ball up the top, rocketing around in those pop bumpers, it moves super fast. I've made a point of tuning my pop bumpers. I like the switch to be on a hair trigger. So that as soon as the ball touches it from every angle, it rockets it back in the opposite direction. And my gosh, (laughs) it is terrifying in a beautiful, beautiful way. So the argument here is that you are better off lighting the pop bumpers and and shooting the ball up the back to get points. Because it's true, you can get lots and lots of points very quickly. The only problem with that is that the dragon heads are specifically designed to drain you. The way they're designed, because they're almost shark fin shaped, when the ball comes from behind them, the ball very smoothly rolls off them. And if you hit the inside of them, it will direct the ball almost right down the middle every time. And there's almost nothing you can do. So the trade-off here is, Sure, it's good to get the ball up the back in old games in general because it's doing stuff up there and it's away from the flippers. But as it comes back down towards you, it's far more likely to drain if there's something in the way. So my advice as far as where to go first, I would always tackle the dragon heads first because once you clear the play field, it becomes a totally different game. And that's the trouble though. It's actually quite difficult to clear the play field. But once you do that, it's a far safer game because you've got a nice wide open play field and the pop bumpers are at least kind of tucked up the back for the most part. But they still can be super dangerous if you're not careful. So what else have we got going on? There's also four bonus targets. So once you've knocked down either the right-hand side dragon heads, which there's two of them, or the left-hand side ones, same deal, it exposes a blue advanced bonus target. So every time you hit that, you get 5,000 points and you get to advance the bonus. There's also a special that can be lit and I believe that's by getting the one to five rollovers at the top of the playfield lit. Also on the far left and right, just above the flipper rollover lanes, there's two yellow targets that also give you 5,000 points and advance the bonus. Now I find these are like most shots that are brought close to the flippers and are far left and right. They are so super dangerous, really hard to get, and (laughs) probably not advised to try on purpose. Because considering you can get bonus by knocking down dragon heads, and then you've got the blue targets, which are about three quarters of the way up at the play field, 
on the left and right hand side, you're probably far better going for them. Now, the interesting thing about these bonus targets is that they're kind of like an electromechanical kickback. Now, a kickback, and I believe, I'll probably get in trouble for this, I believe the first kickback mechanism was on the Williams pinball machine F14 Tomcat, the Yagoff kickback, where the ball is essentially rocketed back towards you via a mechanical <laughs> mechanism so fast that you really don't have almost have time to flip, but it's directed at a flipper. So you it doesn't drain, which is an amazing feature. When I pulled this game apart and I had these targets out of the play field, I noticed that the actual contacts were bent quite far apart and I was going to put them back together closer. But then when I took all four of them out, I noticed they were all exactly the same design. So they are actually designed to sit in the play field like this. They're quite responsive, so you don't have to stress about getting them. You can hit them you know, reasonably hard and they work, but they rocket the ball back really quickly. The trouble is with this, double-edged sword, these are very, very dangerous shots. If you hit it dead on, say from the right flipper, you hit the left bonus target dead on, it will rocket it back straight to your flipper. And then you can do the same thing again. But if you get it slightly off, then you're in all sorts of trouble. And to be honest, going for bonus in this game is something I don't often do. The only time I do is to go for extra ball. When you get 50,000 bonus, you get extra ball. So the cool thing about this game is by knocking down all the dragon heads, you will get an extra ball, which is awesome. So sometimes it's worth going for that one bonus shot to get the extra ball. Now, the thing I haven't mentioned here... Another little beautiful design quirk is what I like to call the secret orbit shot. <laughs> now, I was looking at definitions of an orbit shot. Now, according to the Google definition of an orbit, it says a path for the ball that hugs the outer rim of the game. And it went on to say that it usually, in air quotes, means it returns from another orbit also. That was a bit of a revelation to me. Like, I happily assumed that orbits were almost always a 180 shot, where it's the far left or the far right of the game. And I like the idea of that saying it hugs the outer rim of the game. I always happily assume if you hit it on the left-hand side, it would arc back around and come back around to the right. And that was what an orbit was. But according to this definition, it doesn't have to come back. It usually does. So I'm not 100% sure, but for the sake of argument, we'll call this an orbit. Because what happens is, on each side of the game, you've got rollover buttons, which I haven't actually talked about yet. Another beautiful Spanish design. They look a little like uh, fruit tingles, I like to describe them. And they literally are little plastic buttons that sit above the playfield and the ball rolls over them and you score points. 100 when they're not lit and 1,000 when they're lit. So you've got five each side and they light up as you hit down the dragon heads so you hit one say on the left hand side and the top two buttons will light for example but as you're knocking down the dragon heads you'll slowly be lighting the rollover buttons on each side so they are in the orbit lanes on the left and right hand side i actually thought it might hinder the ball trajectory and you might get some ball hang-ups on them but they work wonderfully this is where you get that excellent machine gun squeak sound because each of those is accompanied by a blip or a squeak <laughs> and you can get them in succession so not only does this game have the fascinating sound of a dying dragon but it has the machine gun squeals of the rollover buttons <laughs> and as i mentioned in the resto section i'm very familiar with this squealing sound because this would often <laughs> get stuck 
when the machine was playing up and had this elongated squeal, so it's burned into my brain. So what do I mean by a secret orbit then? Well, basically, if you hit either the left or right orbit, so you're hugging the outer rim of the game, most of the time, and I'd say about 90% of the time, it feeds it into the pop bumpers. So you're heading up the back and you'll either hit one of the three pop bumpers and it'll start it. But if you hit the ball just right, it can't be too hard, it can't be too soft, it will act as what I consider an orbit should. It will beautifully glide from one side of the playfield, just arc over the back of the pop bumpers and come down the other side. And it is Oh, it's one of those satisfying shots. Just beautiful kineticism. Like, oh, wonderful. And it's interesting, I um, happened to discover one of Marco Rossignoli's pinball books. My lovely wife bought them for me for my birthday. I've been slowly getting through them. And of all things, the dragon was in the first one, which is amazing. I just happened to come across it as I was doing research for this game. So I got some good info from that. Great books too. I highly recommend them. He mentioned that these orbits always feed the pop bumpers. And I find that interesting. It's because I've spent so much time with this game that I've actually managed to see this orbit shot. It's almost something that happens by accident. But if you only played the game casually for a little bit, you probably wouldn't see it very often. But when you do, wow, it's one of those pinball moments. Nothing I like better than an old game like this that's got something hidden just underneath the hood, something you don't always see. And it's fun too, because if dragon heads have lit up all the buttons, then you can get 10,000 points just by doing that alone, which is really fun. So a succession of five on one side as it gracefully comes down the other side and takes out the other five rollovers. So let's talk strategy. Now, the dragon heads are obviously the main aim of the game. And for my money, this is where you should start. You should actually attempt to do exactly what the game wanted you to do. As far as a strategy for getting them, I've tried all manner of things. And to be honest, there's no real one way of doing it. There is some wisdom that crossing the playfield, like hitting from the right flipper and hitting a head on the left-hand side, is maybe more dangerous. But nothing's really definite. The ball is generally always wild. Like, I do have some success. If you can slow the ball down and catch it in either left or right flipper, it doesn't hurt to try and backhand it. And what I mean by that is hitting a dragon head on the same side as the flipper, because it is a slow, deliberate way of getting some of the heads knocked down. But eventually, you're going to have to go for the middle one. And you want to probably hit that on the fly. If you're slowing the ball right down and deliberately hitting that, it's more likely to go straight down the middle if you don't catch it quite right. And little aside here, I've come across a quirk of EMs, which is nice to know that it's just part of the deal because I can deal with it then. EM mechanics, and I think it's across the board with most EMs, they're not really designed for two switches to hit super fast at the same time. So with this game, if you hit two dragon heads down in quick succession, you basically don't get a score for both of them, and you also don't get the wonderful mooing twice. (laughs) There has to be time for the mechanical computer to catch up. But the good thing is it still counts as far as getting the special lit by knocking all the heads down. So it still registers 
that it's been knocked down, but it just it's too quick for you to get the points. So there's no point really trying to get more than one head at a time. Let's recap. What's the ultimate game then? Okay, so you've knocked down all the dragon heads. So what do you do now? So basically, you've got the orbit rollover buttons lit on both sides. So what I do when I've knocked down all the dragon heads, hopefully I've got an extra ball lit. Now, what I do now is I go up the back to the pop bumpers. So ideally, what you want to do is you want to get pop bumper action. Things really start moving and your points can rocket up. At the same time, you really want them lit. And there's a very good chance that the pop bumpers will knock them up through those rollover lanes and they will light up there. So that's basically it. A very simple game, but a beautifully designed, easy to understand, but very difficult to master. Once you get that perfect game, though, I always say the same thing about pennies. Once you do good things and everything lights up like a Christmas tree, oh, it's just a wonderful, wonderful feeling. And you find with the dragon, once you've cleared the play field of all the heads, because the danger is dramatically decreased... So there's not as much on the play field to direct the ball between the flippers. If you take your time and just try and get those orbit shots up the back and get the pop bumpers moving, you can really rack up the points. And also, as I said, keep an eye on the bonus. It's worth going for that. But that's basically about the size of it. A classic example of a game where you just say, oh, okay, one more time. So that's it. I think I'm done. <laughs> this is a bit of a long form one, this one. So uh, hopefully that sates some of the appetites out there. If there's anyone who still wants to listen to my ramblings, yeah, I just felt this was a real journey. This was actually a particularly interesting time in my life to take on board a different style of mechanical game that I've never, ever dealt with before. I knew what happened at some stage because I do have a few EMs that I'm very keen to get hold of one of these days. I've got a wish list of all sorts of games, as you would imagine. And I just want to say as well, don't be afraid to do it. Like I'm really hoping that by spelling out my experience that I can give people maybe a bit of hope that no matter what situation is thrown at you, there's always a solution if you can be bothered looking for the answer because none of these things are insurmountable. There are obviously some things on pinball games that are unobtainium, but for the most part, you can usually work something out. So I encourage anyone out there who's keen for a project, especially in this climate where games have become super expensive and though things have settled somewhat, the only things you're probably going to get for a cheap price uh, EM games. And if you're thinking about getting a pinball machine, I know I've talked about this in the past, don't stress about getting the perfect game straight up. I guess it's worth thinking about how good resale is to a certain degree, but when it comes to kind of these lower tier games, you can usually make some money on it. I mean, if you pay yourself by the hour, you will make no money <laughs> from it. <laughs> I've done some calculations and it is quite devastating. And with this baby, whew, I tell you what, I'd be a very poor worker. But now that I say that, after going through this process, the next EM that I do, I'll be a lot quicker. And I think I and I think I'll heed the common advice out there and maybe tackle something that's American made and maybe a single player. But it depends what I find. And as I said, don't be afraid. Just get in there. Get your hands stuck in. And even if you your first game is an EM and you're planning on getting an Adams family, trust me, you get one game 
in your house, you will love it. You will absolutely love it. It'll imbue you. You'll be able to discover it yourself. It'll be your thing. And then you can always sell it and get something else when you know a little bit more about pinball. Or keep it and get another one <laughs> if you've got the money to do it. Because you know what? Budgets are different for everybody. But if you stick to kind of more lower tier games, especially at first, you're more likely to be able to build your collection and get more than one. I've somehow managed to squeeze out those few extra games in my collection, despite my lovely wife's misgivings. <laughs> but unless you've got an unlimited budget, there's no real need to lament the fact that you can't buy The Adams Family. There are plenty of other great games out there. And some of these old EMs, have got a charm that you can only really discover if you give them the time. Thanks for listening. The Pimble Tapes is an original concept written and edited by me, Zach Collin. The original music in this episode, including the title track, the Octagon and the Saw were written and played by my band, The Sea Thieves. You can listen and follow The Sea Thieves on Bandcamp, Apple Music, Tidal and Spotify. If you want to get in touch with corrections and comments, you can email me at thepinballtapes at gmail.com. I also can't leave it without shamelessly plugging my wife and I's cafe bar and event space called The Jade. If you like seeing some live music, having a party or simply enjoying an excellent coffee or cold beverage, while playing pinball, of course, then come and visit us at 142 to 160 Flinders Street, Adelaide, South Australia. At the time of this recording, the mighty whirlwind is on site in our cosy heritage front bar, just waiting for you to experience its kinetic wonder. Keep an ear out for future episodes, and I have more games to explore with you. Stay cool, Daddy-O. Zach signing in.